everyone. Welcome to the first Glasscast, the podcast made by the Glass Network, Scotland's organisation for LGBT plus legal professionals. My name is David Murphy. My pronouns are he, him. I'm the secretary of the Glass Network and currently work in-house at the University of Edinburgh's research office, dealing with a variety of academic research projects and clinical trials. I mean, more than that, David, you're also now the first person to speak on the Glasscast officially. But... Hi, I'm Drew McCusker. My pronouns are he, him. I'm the president of the Glass Network. And hi, this is so exciting. This is the first time I've been working on a podcast. David, have you ever done something like this before? Uh, No, this is the first time for me as well. Did you ever like act or do anything as a child to do with performance? No, nothing like that. I like to sing. So some stage Uh, performance from that, but certainly no kind of uh, acting skills in my background. Actually, I did a little bit of acting and I really wanted to be an actor, which is why I became a field actor and became a lawyer. (laughs) I think I know I know for a fact that I have really bad diction and I'm really bad at articulation whenever I was acting in these short films or on plays and theatres, nobody would know what I'm saying. So the fact that I'm now on a podcast speaking with you about really important issues is a a big, big learning curve for me. And my addiction hopefully is getting better, but who knows about that. But yeah, this is exciting. I'm so happy you're here. I'm really happy to be here as well. We have a really amazing first episode. So we're going to talk to a professor actually down in England called Stephen Whittle, who is this incredible trans activist that um, our Glass Network colleague Kay Fawkes and I were able to interview together about his work and about his activism. But before we talk about that, David, I am really interested in what you have to talk about because you have a specific interest and know-how about the blood ban that affected and affects so many of us in the LGBT plus community. Like, tell me more about it. Yes, Drew. As as you said, today we're here to talk about a really interesting topic before we get on to the interview that you and Kay have arranged with Stephen. And this issue is one that has impacted the LGBT plus community for decades. I think most recently you might have seen in the news as of December 2020, it was announced that the blood donation rules for men who have sex with men are being relaxed across the UK. And that represents a landmark change and frankly, one which is long overdue. I think just to give a little bit of background into the rules surrounding blood donation, it's important to know that 1980 to 2011, men who have sex with men were unable to donate blood in the UK at all. And that was the result of a lifetime ban that was implemented due to the HIV AIDS crisis in the 1980s. 2011? Yeah, 2011. That is so long. I didn't realise it was that long. God. Yeah, I think it, that was the case for about 31 years. I think just acknowledging that, it's it's quite clear that that original blanket ban mm. that was based on sexual orientation, it, it was deeply rooted in fear and stigma of HIV AIDS, just looking at, at where that originated. So moving on to 2011, when some progress was made, that lifetime ban was lifted in the UK. And instead, some progress was made. But even in 2011, there was still lot of work to be done because while the ban was lifted a one-year deferral period was put in place for men who have sex with men if you were sexually active and of course that ban was still particularly problematic as it required those individuals to abstain from sex for a whole year in order to be eligible to donate blood. It's funny because there's a public health effect 
on it and that you don't get all the blood you could get you kind of maybe ostracize a whole community but personally i remember arguing in my head my blood is okay my blood is good but it doesn't Mm. matter i remember that, that hit me It's particularly problematic when you actually look at the community that was being affected by it, because I think that there was already a huge amount of stigma surrounding HIV AIDS without any kind of additional burden being placed on individuals as this ban no doubt did. Moving on from 2011, that one year ban was effectively in place for a period of about six years. And it was in 2017 that there was further relaxation to the rules, which allowed men who have sex with men to donate blood if they had abstained from sexual activity for a period of three months. So again, you see that there is still this, I guess, this stigma um, kind of tied in there because unlike heterosexual um, donors, men who have sex with men were still subject to a deferral period before they were able to donate blood. And that ultimately placed her under stricter measures than the rest of the population. So even if you were in a monogamous relationship, you would still have to abstain from sexual activity for a period of three months um, in order to be eligible to donate. What is the logic behind that? Just that gay men can't be trusted, that they're going to be sleeping rampant behind each other's backs and cheating on the other and transmitting this? It doesn't make sense to me. It just jumps the gun in so many ways. Yeah, absolutely. I think when we actually look back to where the ban originated in, in the 1980s, in the midst of the HIV AIDS epidemic, due to the fact that the initial ban was implemented when fear and stigmatization was at its peak. We've had to do, and and by we, I mean a variety of organizations and healthcare professionals have had to do a, a significant amount of work and campaigning in order to reduce this ban and reduce these deferral periods, with the end goal being that we actually move towards a, a more e- equal blood donation system. I don't recall who in particular made this statement, uh, but certainly one of one of the healthcare professionals who was particularly involved in campaigning to have this deferral period reduced and eventually to remove this deferral period, they said that they had done a two-year study which resulted in evidence being gathered suggesting that including men who have sex with men in the pool of blood donors it didn't actually affect the, the safety of the blood supply. Okay, so where are we now? As of December 2020, we've seen that there's some movement. Ultimately, right now, as we speak, we uh, are still subject to the rules that are in place as of 2017, so that deferral period of three months. But from summer 2021, anyone wishing to donate blood is going to be given an individual risk assessment. And that risk assessment, that's going to be set up to ask potential donors questions around their sexual behaviour. That new criteria, because it focuses on individual behaviours, that's going to lift the blanket ban for any men who have had sex with men in the last three months. And that impending change uh, means that those who are in a long-term relationship are now going to be able to donate blood at any time. That's an amazing news story. My friend RJ Arkhipov, he's a Scottish and Welsh poet, and he's also this huge activist behind the blood ban. He's got a beautiful book called mm. Visceral, about blood and about gay blood ban. And I think he wrote some of the poetry in his own blood as well. And it was so interesting because he talked a lot about this issue and people should check him out. And it is actually a huge full circle thing. The thing that keeps us alive is good. The thing that is so sacrosanct and it's good enough for people as well. Interesting because it shows that real privilege of being strong 
straight or having heterosexual relationships because literally our lives can be in your hands because we need you to give blood. There's so many gay men out there or bi men out there who will have been in accidents and have needed to have blood transfusions and will need to have half that straight blood. It's amazing though that now, actually, you know, gay men and men who have sex with men, bisexual men as well, will be able to give blood freely. It's a really big evolution from the fear of HIV to the clear-headed, sensible approach, which it always should have been, you know? Yeah, I th- it's definitely clear that the changes are very welcome. It's quite shocking that it's taken so long for these changes to be implemented but I do think that by acknowledging that that all donors have the potential to carry bloodborne infections including heterosexual men and women it signals this move towards equality in donor selection criteria by adopting a more of an individualized risk-based approach rather than having a blanket ban on a particular group of people based on your sexuality. How about this then David? When the lockdown is lifted, we all go and give blood, have a big old bloody day out. I think it sounds like a great idea and a great way to celebrate our new freedoms. Thanks so much for letting us know about that. Another part of our LGBT plus history is how our whole society looks at, talks about and respects the rights of our trans siblings, colleagues and family members. So moving on to now our fantastic interview with Stephen Whittle. Stephen Whittle is an academic who has spent a lifetime campaigning, educating, going to court for the rights of him and more importantly, his family. Because what I found so interesting about this interview is that he talks about his cases he talks about how important they were for his children about how they could have pride in who they are and who their family is and i just thought this man is really a role model Hello and welcome to The Glasscast. This is the podcast done by The Glass Network, Scotland's organisation for LGBT plus legal professionals. My name is Drew McCusker, my pronouns are he, him, and I'm here today with my friend and colleague. Hi, I'm Kay Fowkes. Not quite a lawyer yet, still working on the diploma, and my pronouns are she, her. And together we are both committee members of the Glass Network. We have a very exciting and cool guest today. And there's so many titles to give them, I'm not quite sure what to do. But essentially we have Stephen Whittle here. And if you haven't known who Stephen Whittle is, then you're about to find out in this podcast. But I'm going to start with the hard questions first. Stephen, that is a cracking photograph of you in your Wikipedia. Do you choose that or does somebody else choose that for you? Somebody else chose that. <laughs> I didn't choose that myself, but I agree. First of all, you're on all your fancy Buckingham Palace regalia. You've got this gorgeous top hat on, and you've got a cracking colours with the tie. And I just wonder if people update other people's Wikipedia pages, or if you just go on like, do you know what? I'm pretty cracking in that photograph. Do that one forward. I've sometimes debated updating my Wikipedia page because there are bits that are wrong on it. It's actually totally non-Wikipedia, um, what's the word? I can't help you know, I'm getting older and losing words. When you're polite to people. Um, <laughs> etiquette. Etiquette, fine? thank you. Yeah. It's, it's absolutely not Wikipedia etiquette to ever edit your own page. We're so excited to have you on the podcast and hopefully you can tell the truth then on this of what Wikipedia has missed out on it. We're looking to this whole series about role models who work in the legal profession or who work with the legal profession to make law and society more inclusive, particularly with LGBT plus people in mind. This being legally focused, you're being a professor of law. The question is, what was it that brought you to law? I was sick 
to death of being sat. That's the actual basic honest truth. I'd just been sat again, sort of started doing building work in between jobs, working with my brother, and then branching out on my own, sort of just doing base painting and decorating initially, and then gradually taking on more complex work, learning how to do a bit of plumbing and plastering and such like in between getting real jobs. And then I'd get another real job, and eight weeks later I'd be sat once more once you had to submit all the paperwork. And I was absolutely sick to death of it. I really couldn't see a future at all for me, for my partner, Sarah, for the idea that we should ever have ordinary life for family and earn decent wages. And I always thought, you know, we're not stupid people and we've never done anything wrong. Mark Reese was outed by the Guardian newspaper, who used his real name rather than the name that he was in bed used in the European court case. So I contacted him and we'd had a few conversations. And I literally said one day, the real problem we have is nobody understands the law. Not one of us actually knows how it works. And so I saw this course which said law and it included building law. So I thought maybe I could get a job as a clerk of work or something like that. Didn't ever think I'd become a lawyer because nobody would ever employ somebody like me as a lawyer. Started the course, there's five years of evening classes, and I loved it. I found something that was like maths with language. It combined everything I was interested in, the whole way we communicate, the way we create spaces in which we survive as group of people. I'd done my original degree in geography and become really focused as a historical geographer. I was very interested in those things. And in law, I found something that the interests of how we use words were fitting into a system which actually was just that. And I was very, very good at that, my sort of area. And um, when I finished the degree, it didn't do that well, middling to do. Mostly I think husband, my family education has been on transsexuals and the law. And the woman who marked it clearly knew nothing but who'd given me guides over the years knew nothing at all about it. Second marker really down marked I discovered afterwards you'd written one of the two hundred legal articles that had been published in journals up to that date and he thought he knew everything. But I got my own back in the end. <laughs> when I was being interviewed for a place for PhD, when they asked me what I wanted to do, I said I wanted to look at transsexuals. Remember we were just transsexuals, we weren't people at that point. And he said, Well, you know, how are you going to do that? And I said, Well, I intend to survey and interview people, it will be a ethnographic study. I said, well, you never manage that. How many people do you intend to survey? So I said, well, a few. A few, a few. You know, you can't talk three or four. What are you talking about? And I said, mm, eight, nine hundred, a thousand, maybe fifteen hundred. And his face was just, what do you mean? How, wow, you can't get hold of these people. Nobody can. I said, well, I know these people personally. How, how, how can you know these people? Well, because I am one of them. Now, in fact, the guy who was going to supervise me for the PhD had already known for three years. He'd been positively encouraging me. But this guy, who was such a pompous prick, what? What? What do you mean you are one of them? What do you do with the beard when you dress up? <laughs> OK, OK, let's wind this back a bit. Let's get back to some reality. <laughs> you know, did my PhD. I didn't know at the time that you weren't allowed to do two degrees at the same time. So I'd also registered for a master up at Edge Hill and started my PhD. Unfortunately, 
One was in sociology and one was in law. How is that fortunate? Like, being one degree is difficult enough. There's nothing fortunate about doing two degrees at the same time. Right, I did two degrees at the same time, ran a business, had our first baby, decided to take case to court because they refused my wife fertility treatment. So, you know. Did you just drink only caffeine for seven years or something? You didn't watch television. But you did or didn't watch television? I didn't. I discovered all this time when you, if you didn't watch television. <laughs> we'll have none of that nonsense on here, Stephen, okay? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> used to watch television once a week. We used to have a drama that we'd sit together with a glass of wine. I mean, I, I don't know how you've survived lockdown with that kind of mentality, honestly. If it wasn't for Tiger King, I don't know what I would do in 2020. <laughs> Go, is, we're talking about doing these law degrees while all these things are going on in your life. How did you find being a lawyer as well as an activist? There's a necessity to activism. A lot of people are able to change the law and move the law forward without a law degree. Do you think that being a lawyer helps you in doing so? Oh, I think it helped me tremendously because I had this access through language, uh-huh. through lawyers. You know, being able to talk to lawyers, whether they worked in policy development or practice, whether they worked in drafting legislation, or they were senior judges. Every now and then, found myself having dinner with a judge at the most senior level and thought, this is such a privilege to be able to do this because I would never have been able to. But by having those conversations, by being known, people began to see something about me that they hadn't imagined and that was that I did have two horns on my head and a tripod trident in my hand and you know I wasn't one of the devil's horn talking about family about children about living about buying homes about all the ordinary things that people did in life that we were then able to do that law actually gave us access to I remember somebody saying to me, a, a judge once saying to me, if you want to get a judge to give you a decision that you want, first thing you need to do in a situation like this is explain it to his wife. This was a time when 99% judges were still men. Uh-huh. And he is never going to move. Right. But if he sits at the breakfast table and his wife says, there's this article in the paper about one of the cases you're seeing, you can't get conversation taking place, which enable him mm-hmm. to actually begin to think differently, to actually observe you and your case, your client case differently. Mm-hmm. And I felt that one of the most important lessons that I learned was that as a lawyer, as an actor, you have to be able to work and talk with your community, to listen to your community more than anything. One of the biggest problems with activism to this day is activists who do not learn their history, their community. I mean, black civil rights activists would say exactly the same thing to you. We have to get the next generation to do almost what we did, which to learn our history, to listen to our community more than anything. But it also enables you then to take those people's voices, because that is what you're doing, you're not taking your own, you take their voice to the people who are developing policy, are making law, are changing the legislation on the book. We have this a few years ago, a study suggesting that one in 25 members of the Scottish Law Society are trans. But, <laughs> but at the same time, we rarely know anyone. For looking for a trans lawyer to interview this, we've had to look down to England. But for yourself, for Dr. McLeod, I guess it's, it is that. And I guess it's understanding it myself, having had experiences like yourself, having had that in work and being asked, also, oh, when are you going to have children? I, I can't have children. Are you sure? Well, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> that I get pregnant as everyone else in the office in my age is getting pregnant. And it's the value of not just blending in. 
it, it goes it, to what you said. One of the most difficult sets of decisions I have to make in the sense that I transitioned in 1975. And for about 14 years, there were people that knew, but they were in very limited spaces. Because if I wanted any life at all, and wanted to do anything that was within the sphere of areas I love, working with people, all of those things, the minute I was going to come out in any way, shape or form in 1992, when we, you know, well, it was, it was having our first child. I had a conversation with Sarah, which said, you know, I want any children we have to know who I am, but to know why they've come into this world this way. I don't want to lie to them at all, because I think it's the lies that cause the problems. And also, the fact is, we have known several couples now where the children have not known that their dad was trans. And you can guarantee there's been a massive row at some point, and partners shouted, and your dad's not your dad because he's had a set change. I said, there's lots of times you might shout things at me, but I don't want that to be the thing that you shout, because in anger, people do lots of things they regret. And we'd have this conversation and for Sarah it was particularly difficult because Sarah is quite a private person and always has been you know she said she remembers doing her psychiatry training and being terrified that when they were doing the bit on trans and gender dysphoria so they thought geez I hope they don't show us film of my husband because I just don't think I could deal with that now and all those things so it was very hard for us both for her particularly but we made a whole set of dish about coming out and I've been out since 1992 and being out has been a very challenging thing at times but we have had so many physical and emotional assault on our lives as a family but you know ironically they've in many ways made us stronger our kids are the most active trans allies you could find anywhere in the world so in many ways they have really cemented our family but there have been times during that when the stress and the strain of it has been so hard i'm not going to white coat it and say oh it's all lovely and this that and the other because it really is hard i've been in classes where i've had people stand up and shout abuse at me i've been walking down the street when people want me i've been accused of abusing my children you know and have police investigations you name it it's been there we have fought through it and I don't regret any part of it. It Sarah. just sounds so tiring though. It just sounds like, you know, being the, the trans lawyer or whatever that title is that people put on you. It kind of, it sounds like it limits people to an extent or you to an extent. And really there is a limit work. anyway, concrete ceiling. You know, not everybody can be Vicky McLeod. And in many ways, if you want to get most I've been so lucky at Manchester because I was a student there doing my law degree. I did my PhD there. They got to know me. And at the time the job came up, my colleagues were saying, apply for it. It's almost like they had forgotten the trans bit. I moped throughout the place. I did the computers, you know, I was smiley and happy. I was the person who knew everybody's daughter's dental appointment. You know, I'd made myself much more than just a colleague, but I'd made myself part of a family within the place. In fact, when I first taught part-time there, people, guys were still wearing suits and ties and women were still wearing suits. <laughs> you know, it was as if you worked in the law department, I was the first person going in teeth in a pair of jeans with a shirt and a sweater. The number of times people said things to me like, what are you doing in here? Why haven't we got enough chairs out? Just incredible, the things that were done. And those things were just based upon clothing and presentation. You know, I said to somebody once, you know, I'm short and fat, suits don't fit me. <laughs> 
if they could see us now or working from home in our joggies, I wonder what they're taking. Uh, absolutely. It is. It's very interesting to hear because sort of in some ways parallels my own experience. Um, I'm sorry to hear that is still the case, you know, but well, I'm, I'm not surprised. My original plan was to join the army, but this was, I was, uh, I'm, I managed three years in the territorial army, but then it Bloody was the hell. choice at the time it was, I had to make a choice of, do I want to be myself? I got to the grand old age of 19 before I had my first breakdown trying to cope with that and then joined the civil service and just sort of disappeared and did that for 10 years and it's only at the end of a law degree where I slowly started to be more open about who I was and I think it was very much being with a younger generation of lawyers who are so much more aware that I was more willing and the reason that I know Drew is at the end of my law degree last year Glasgow was doing 100 voices of 100 women in law for because 100 years since Madge Anderson Easton yes. and, and I noticed that there was no trans voice in there like I hadn't actually graduated at that point and sort of but I think but I think it's sort of the the fear like this is that I don't have a training contract yet and it's what you're saying would it have been safer for me not to have outed myself to effectively the entire Scottish legal profession I do see people get contracts and often the fact that they are trans if you use it you can actually use it to your advantage now in the sense of I've dealt with extremely difficult things in life I've told people extremely difficult things for them to understand you know I've done all that Believe you me, I can deal with the court, the criminals, and it is that new generation that's going to make a difference. It really is that new generation that's going to make a difference. It's the generation who have been taking degrees in the last five to ten years that are going to make a difference. Almost the generation of our children who are now in their twenties. But seeing them go through school and seeing them become a gradual awareness that LGBT baiting in school was not acceptable. My daughter in primary school came home saying, why do they say this as if it's a bad thing? And I'm going, well, this is you give the history. And the next thing is she's got herself elected to a school council, you know, and she's got this policy of no bad talk in the school. It's up on the school doors, you know, and you think, yeah, you know, she was determined. And then I saw my own, the children actually go in secondary school was amazing because they went to a school that specialised in IT. Mm. So, of course, the first day they all get thrown into the IT room. They're all tapping away on computers. And the next thing is the voice go, hey, has your dad had a sex change? Mm. And my kid just went, yeah, what of it? Do you want to know anything about it? Wow. I think we're starting to see more general LGBT inclusion, not so much the trans inclusion with the larger... But we're still going to face huge problems because of what has been the recent backlash that we face. And I think that organised gender-critical mass, which is being funded in all sorts of very strange ways, concerns me massive because I think that they are starting to bring cases which are extremely troubling. And it's whether the court have the court to say we do not accept. Yeah, I think there's definitely been a distinction in the way that cases have been dealt with at employment tribunal. To have seen this week to have had a second case where an employment tribunal judge has said, actually, and my dissertation was focusing on LGBT asylum seekers who I've worked with. I'm an immigration lawyer by trade in the Home Office. And it was that. It was noticing that the use of the Equal Treatment Bench book, it's not used at all 
it was in a handful of cases, effectively. So no, absolutely. Was... I mean, I do a volunteer with various organisations and for various firms, actually providing country report or expert witness reports on immigration and asylum cases. Quite difficult because you realise the notion of equal treatment is absolutely absent in the yeah. You know, bringing it into an employment tribunal is actually easier because you are going to get it generally referred to. But there is a, a sort of principle of non-equal treatment in the asylum at the asylum and immigration courts are a sort of grounding principle. You have to fight through that and the only way through that is human rights law. That's what we have to do and we have to use our expertise in. It's going to maybe take until it gets to these judges in the Supreme Court and the Human Rights Court who actually have a proper understanding of the equality. Years ago in the case of A versus West Yorkshire Police, so we're talking 2000, Brenda Hale sat there in the hearing and part of the judgment as, as a sort of a side remark which I wish had got published she said the court do not accept bigotry West Yorkshire police were arguing that Muslim women would really object if a trans woman searched them and she said if I wouldn't object as a woman why would a Muslim woman you're assuming yes. that Muslim women are more bigoted than non-Muslim women, which is not the case anyway, as a matter of fact the courts don't accept bigotry she said this so clearly and I remember thinking, yes, somebody's finally got it (laughs) my hero, my heroine whatever you call it nowadays Queen, King, Monarch That's something that anyone who's got experience in court knows that very often the most interesting things that judges say don't get written Don't ever make it into the decision, (laughs) no, I know but it's, I find it so frustrating, my dear, you know, these cases are being heard and decided upon by people who are not at least openly part of our community. This is exactly what's just happened with the Gender Recognition Act consultation. Yes. It's the voices that have been heard who don't know me. Mm-hmm. They don't know people like, you know, we have these people talking about us and our lives and how we are. And they've never met me. They've never met anybody like me. They're going off. Somebody the other day on Twitter produced these news national inquirer report on trans women in prison who'd hit somebody else you know hit another woman and you go if you go into a female prison female women are hitting women all the time in women's prisons i'm afraid if a trans woman hits another woman in a prison it's not unusual because she's probably been hit several times along the way herself so it's like they just don't get us yeah i completely agree with everything you're saying i think just I'm more frustrated by the fact that the only way that we are to change that is to get visibly, vocally out queer lawyers, first of all, have bringing cases to court, then arguing cases in them court as barristers or advocates, then you need to have them up behind the bench. And I think if we are wanting to have more correctly decided judgments, we're going to have to at least be thinking this is a 30 year process before we have a number of judges or sheriffs behind the bench. And that is so, you know, it's not, it's a, I don't want to say it's um, demotivating, it's kind of much more motivating and I get a lot more, more angry about it. It is a 30 year process, it is a 30 year process, but we are getting there. So, I mean, if you think that it was 1994, I was in Houston at a conference and there were six of us who were lawyers there, Sharon Minter, Casey Kapoor, myself, Jen Levi, James Jameson Green. We were sat around the table making plans. And those plans were take over WPAP, take over the standards of care and change them. So, you know, present X number of cases before the court. I think the, the first case we did was actually Brandon Tina's mother. 
Brandon Tina has been murdered for being trans. The Hilary Swank film. And his mother had brought a case against police because they had disclosed his trans identity, which had led to him being brutally raped and then three days later being murdered. So she brought a case for compensation against the police. She won a large amount of money, but it was reduced by 95 cents because Brandon was trapped. In other words, he was at fault for yeah. his own yeah. rape and death. And we were furious. Shannon took on the case and we spent a long time trying to work out case. And actually, it was a, the decision we took in the end of, was that actually Brandon had behaved as a good citizen all time. Mm. He reported the crime. He paid his own penalty for a couple of driving offences. He'd reported the crime of being raped. He disclosed, you know, told everything. He'd done absolutely valuable. He was a good citizen. As a good citizen, why should he be penalised just because he has autonomy in choosing who he lives as? And uh, we won back to compensation, um, which was, you know, in itself rewarding, but to be able to think with another group of trans people who were lawyers mm. was so important. The case about Brandon Tina, which is, I guess, a name and a case you should know about. Can you tell us about any other cases that are significant to your legal career or to your life? There was obviously all the court cases that went to the European Court of Human Rights. My involvement gradually racked up from being somebody who was commenting to somebody who was writing a brief to somebody who was writing an amicus to the court to actually X, Y and Z being X in the case, there being Y and Z being our first child. And we got Z2, Z3, Z4 while we were doing the case. We went to Europe on the basis that the government refused to allow me to be registered as the father of children, even though as any other male partner of a woman having fertility treatment through the clinic system, I had had to complete the form saying I would be held legally liable as father of this child for all financial, you know, etc., etc. purposes ad infinitum in perpetuity <laughs> until the end of the universe. I had to sign that piece of paper, and yet they wouldn't acknowledge that they had made me do that, and they wouldn't acknowledge me as co-parent. Now that case we took the European Court of Human Rights. People often don't know the intricacies of the cases but one of the things we were quite clear of was that we were asking for me to put on the birth as second parent i wasn't asking to be dad i was leaving it to the court to decide whether the british birth certificate required there to be a woman and a man on it and if so which one was i and if i was a man or if i was a father did that mean i was the other because actually one of the things people often forget is that as pressure change leading those campaigns, we were committed in our rule book to never removing the rights of any other minority group, men, lesbian and gay people, people of colour, anything. Mm -hmm. So we were very careful as how we did it. So it was to be a second parent. Now, we lost the case. But as Press for Change, we had always written in advance that our press releases for if we lost and if we won. You know, where do you get the spin on these? How do you make sure you get the story out there? And that morning, as the decision came through, yeah. I was giving interviews on the news. And it was one of those non-news days. It was the only non-news day. So we were talking the news yeah. for the whole day. But everybody knew, neighbours, you know, the gardener, the whole world knew. Sarah, my wife, says, you know, she was walking to the nursery to collect our son and she suddenly thought, oh, everybody knows now. Oh, what a relief. She said she still didn't know how they were going to react, but she walked to the gate and she saw this puddle of parents, and then one of them came down, 
just said, we're probably worried about coming up here, but we're just so sorry you've lost the case. And she said that being outed in that way, we've yeah. sort of been outing ourselves more, but it suddenly happened. And it's just the relief. It's like the weight of the world lifted off the shoulders. People didn't like it. Well, fuck them, you know. That's so interesting because I'd always had the preconception that losing a case is reflective of society. And so I thought that if you lost that case, that would mean that this is what society thinks about you. But actually, I didn't think that by losing a case, you'd win hearts and minds. Technical loss, but we made a massive gain in hearts and minds. Yeah. The fact that we had volunteered a short film for local news with us and the children, but became national. But the other thing about it was I went to the court and, you know, it was like I was seen as a human being, finally. And when we finally won, Goodwin and I, I was six weeks earlier before that decision in Strasbourg, you know, having a meal with somebody else. The next thing is I get a wake-up over saying, somebody would like to see you over there. It was one of the judges on the court. And she said, I recognised when you came in and I just thought you'd like, no, now, that it's going to be very good news. Oh, you know, don't say anything, though. <laughs> you couldn't have that happen. No. You know, people forget it's that case in the European Court of Human Rights made a very, very clear statement of law about what constitutes a family and opened up the routeway for the European Court of Justice to recognise lesbian and gay parenting, yeah. what a family was. And that was so important, you know, that for, for us. And, and people forget that, you know, that I came from a large family of children where it seems to me everybody hated each other. So having children for me and for Sarah, who came from a similar family, was really important that we made an active choice to have a family and that we were going to give our children something that we'd never had ourselves, um, despite our strange background. And we have done that. To this day, you know, one of the most powerful tools I have as an activist around the world is to talk about family mm. and to say, look, all of you lot who are very worried about your children, never knowing about people like us, I can tell you, first of all, you've almost certainly given your children a smartphone yeah. and they all nod and I say, well, I'm too late, your kid no. But the second thing is I actually actively believe in the family. The family, to me, doesn't have to take us two parents, ex number of children for. The family is much more complex than that. I've seen families in parts of Africa where AIDS has devastated communities, where you see two women raising 15 children who are left over from this devastation and do not call them a family, do not give them the family benefit. I mean, we did a case that I got involved in oh, years ago at, at one of the human rights hearings for one of the African states, and it concerned exactly that sort of family, two women raising 40 children, and they'd been excluded from family benefit rights to go to school and so on and so forth. I was saying, how can states not recognise what is taking place here? So these people have put aside their lives and every morning get up and make breakfast for these kids and everything else. That is what constitutes family. It isn't something so rigid as two parents, two children come through biology. But I think those have been really important decisions in allowing lesbian and gay and trans people to not feel that they're excluded from family. Throughout the world, I still think that is such an important process that is going on. 
we've obviously had the decision in the McConnell case. It gives you hope that that will get resolved. And I oh, guess absolutely. The McConnell case absolutely won. Where we're talking to Fred about Freddie about it, the need to get that book to realise the mistakes it made in its decision, appalling mistakes about you know the nature of motherhood and the assuming that all women almost have children and this they don't they're not you know they're not fully qualified citizens you know they've got all sorts of terrible mistakes there and one of the things i like as a lawyer is that you actually get to meddle in this stuff you get to sort of interfere with it and say you can't go on like doing this wrong and years ago i remember being in the department of work and pensions arguing the point about the gender recognition act and having this huge you know quite stormy row with the civil servant and david lammy walked in who was then the mp and said what the hell's going on here i said this idiot thinks da, 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 in european law and he turned and he said if he and he pointed to me he said he thinks something different do what he says <laughs> i thought my god you know you say and it's all of that process you realize this was a lawyer you yeah. can get listened to and as an academic lawyer i realized there was a process so you know i became a reader in law uh-huh. and i was asked my opinion i became a professor in law i was asked what the answer was <laughs> that whole process is massively empowering as an individual well actually, i want to ask about that then i was wondering who are your role models when you were growing up or as you are now my, my biggest role model was the lone ranger <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that man so you know it's similar <laughs> the masked man bringing justice was was very much you know somebody i had faith and believed in as a child i've not been a great person for heroes or robots per se i've sort of tried to pick up the best of lots of little, little bits i've always thought all of us are flawed you know and lots of people get disappointed when they discover the flaws but i think there are people whose voices have been really important and those voices actually often come black activist writers bell hooks for example maya angelou these women with such strong powerful voices have been so important with feminist writers liz stanley and sue wise who wrote feminist praxis in the mid 90s that whole thing about actually being an activist Mm -hmm. and being determined to participate in the process of creating society of developing law of doing it not just shouting from the Mm -hmm. sidelines but walking through the door and saying i've got a right to be here and as i say you know i was never very comfortable in a suit but i've learned to wear the right suits at the right places yeah (laughs) which shoes go with which suit Mm -hmm. i can do that now well, I, I have something very useful. If you want a trip for an employment tribunal, it's this. Lawyers don't have these. I have a tattoo. And all you have to do is go, oh, my God, it's very hot in here. Take off your jacket and roll up your shirt. And they don't notice the next 10 minutes going on uh-huh. because they're so focused on your tattoo. <laughs> the very fact that you've taken your jacket off is in itself. Shocking. Weird. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the fact that you roll up your sleeves and have a tattoo is one of sort of, I'm sure this will lose its impact over the next 20 years, but at the moment it still has impact. Yeah, Something I'll have to bear in mind. <laughs> <laughs>
I loved being in employment law. Maybe I should have had a tattoo. A little, a little swallow on my neck. Oh, it's, it's hot in here, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the right next generation then is to get visible tattoos that they can hide and bring out when they need to discover. Absolutely. Thank and, you. And, and as I discovered, in we held a conference in 98, and there was this doctor came over from Australia, and he gave us a whole long lecture about you could tell trans men because they had tattoos. And we were all looking around and going, you're not just <laughs> I haven't got a tattoo. I was out the next day, you know, getting my tattoo just to make sure I qualified. Nobody told me. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, but I think that, you know, you talk about doing cases. One of the very first cases that I worked on was an employment tribunal where a trans woman was going to work as a man because that was the only way she could get a job. Mm. But then somebody had seen her out in Manchester's village as a chosen third acquired gender. I hate all these words. I say she really was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the person she was, and the next thing is she's sad. And then they made up some story about her not washing the frying pan properly. Furious. <laughs> I learned on that one, for example, people lie all the time. They didn't tell the truth and they said they knew she was out because when she took off her overall, when the changing she was wearing a fender belt and stocking, nobody would go to be a kitchen porter and dishwasher wearing a suspender belt and stockings. I mean, the, women just don't wear them anyway, no. you know, any longer. So we have this long little thing in the court going, so what colour were the suspender belt? What colour were the stockings? Oh, what? They were fishnet, weren't they? They were black. Oh, right, okay. Next one comes in. What colour was the suspender belt? You know, oh, she didn't have any stockings on at all. Okay, she just wore the suspender belt. Did she? Right, let's do with this one. Because, you know, these were the sort of stupid things. And these things are still said today in these things. I've, I've got a case ongoing at the moment where the individual was not only outed having worked for his employer for 25 years as an exemplary employee, having told them in the first place his past, because we had no job protection at that point, was outed in the middle of a staff meeting while he was actually on holiday. Somebody slagged off him and his wife, who also worked in the same place, in the most appalling and disgusting language, but of course in the same process, removed every bit of privacy that he was entitled to with having a gender recognition certificate, and they're determined to bring it down to, oh, this was just an, a one act of discrimination by one person. He must have found out from somebody. Mm. And he did this in a way which has now outed him to the entire town where he lives. And I want that recognised in the compensation that he is going to get. I remember when he contacted me about it, he said, you did this once before for me, you know, 20 years ago when I was first outed in work. I said, yes, and we negotiated a settlement. And he said, yeah. it's happened since then. But I said, I have just reached the point where I am, I'm entitled to just have some basic privacy. And I said, yes, you are. And we'll bloody well make sure that that is compensated for. So it's everything from those sorts of things right through to court cases as it's Big case from Georgia that is going to the European Court of Human Rights concerning whether trans people have to have any surgery before they can be legally recognised or have to do anything in particular, even have hormone treatment in a country where hormone treatment is virtually impossible to get. But if somebody's living as a bloke, surely that is enough. So we've got those big cases right through down to, as I say, to very small cases. And what I've loved about is, as an academic and as a lawyer, I have been able to put my hands into so many different areas, which I would not have been able to do if I'd worked in a firm. 
I got paid a lot less than if I worked in a firm, but I've had such an exciting time doing it. I've had the privilege of teaching, which I've loved, doing research, which I'm not very good at, but I plod on and, you know, I still find it really exciting when I discover new things. And I've had the immense pleasure of taking part in so much law. And I love the fact that to this day, people can say, what do I do about this in my passport? What do I do about this about work? And what do I do about this core issue around, you know, my driving license? Whatever it is, right through to the prisons and working in prisons with governors to create change on the ground. And it's been truly exciting. You know, and Sarah and I often sit here at night and comment on, you know, hasn't it been truly, truly exciting? I think we've had more amazing children in circumstances people said would never. We've travelled the world creating change and it's been glorious, glorious life, despite the horrendous acts that are also taking place. So, you know, the one comes with the other. Mentioned earlier, sort of in 20 years, lawyers will be covered in tattoos. <laughs> apart from apart from the start of slightly less conservative legal profession, do you have any predictions of things you might we might see happening in the law in the next 10 years or so? Anybody dare to predict the law? I think we're going to talk directly about the UK. I think we have in Westminster a very unfortunate government. Not only are they inept, they're stupid. We have seen this, the Liz process in which, you know, just last week she gave a long, long, long talk about how, you know, the white working class were being left behind because people like you were clamouring for your right. And I want to show, I am the white working bloody class, you know. Yeah. We're here, yeah. you know, and we're queer and we are going shopping, full stop. Let's get that straight. And our community, it's much a part of our communities and our world. And I think this is so important. These are the changes that we will see on the ground. We will see a gradual acknowledgement of LGBT plus people as being part of the lives of society. But we will see those backlashes. We will see some of the legal court cases being brought. I've seen the, the dreadful decision from the Court of Appeal in relation to children's black treatment, the terrible decision of the Court of Appeal in the McConnell case. You know, we've got the Scottish case concerning, you know, um, that piece of legislation on public boards. We are going to see all those backlashes. We are going to win those cases in the end because I think that we are cleverer than our opponents, much cleverer than our opponents. We are recording this at the beginning of 2021, where we've had a very harsh start to it with the insurrection in Washington and with coronavirus deaths um, and transmission rates going up. But what you said there, Professor Whittle, I feel a lot more hopeful about where we're going to be in 10 years' time. And also I feel a, a little like my, um, my self-esteem as part of our community, our queer community, our legal community, has been um, fully just felt, felt um, you know, filled up with hope because of what you've said. Well, on, on behalf of the Glass Network and on behalf of the people who are listening to this, I want to say thank you so much, not only for this wonderful interview, but for all the work you have done across the UK and Scotland and England and Wales and actually across the world even, of what you've done for our community and letting people know that actually you know, we're here, we're queer, we have families and we have hearts and minds and they're worth talking about and knowing. So thank you so much for being one of our role models for everything you've done to make the world more inclusive. Pleasure. Real pleasure.
So that was today's wonderful interview. Thank you so much for joining us. If you'd liked what you heard and you'd like to hear more, then please like and subscribe on whatever platform you're using. And please do share with all of your friends and colleagues. It would really help the Glasscast to get out there. If you'd like to find out more about The Glass Network, you can find us on our website, which is www.theglassnetworksco.squarespace.com. That's www.theglassnetworksco.squarespace.com. If you use social media, we are available on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook. Thanks again.